If you're one of the people that love this show, make sure you go over to holyfullproductions.com and check out our home. You can read articles. You can see my personal journals straight out of the typewriter. You can see the weekly link roundup of all the interesting things I run across. You can see drawings. You can see books recommended for the book club. Or if you're like me and you like things simple, you can just have it sent right to your inbox by signing up for the newsletter, which goes out almost every day. And of course, you can help support this show through either monthly subscriptions or generous one-time donations. All at hoyfulproductions.com. I can't imagine someone told me when I was 15, 20 years old that technology today, it would blow my mind. I always reference this article that I read like three or four years ago, but I can never remember what it was called. But uh, basically, it talks about like that we kind of live in this like bubble of reality where anytime if you step backwards in time and look at the things that we have now, our minds would be blown. But because we have to exist now that it doesn't phase us, you know, like right. Right. You know, we pick up our iPhones or our Androids and, you know, like it's a computer in our pocket and it does like everything a computer does pretty much. Yet we get annoyed at it and throw across the room or something because, you know, something (laughs) slow. (laughs) So true. Do you think that being an artist and especially like putting stuff online and stuff, how do you, I mean, how does technology feel for you right now? You know, is it, is, are you gelling with the way that things are working or their frustrations? because of how, especially in the Bay Area, how much tech is of such supreme importance? As far as the artwork goes, I think the one advantage I do have is my skill set, as far as drawing and knowing the fundamentals, don't really rely on knowing everything there is to know about, say, Photoshop or Procreate. So if I learn the basics of Photoshop, or learn the basics of Procreate or any other, you know, art program that, that's popular right now. As long as you know the fundamentals, it translates over to the program uh, pretty easily, you know, once you learn what you can do with the program. Because it's just a tool. I think a lot of people fall into the trap of, uh, uh, hey, I got Photoshop now, so I'm going to be good. And they're, they're frustrated because Photoshop didn't make them a good artist. And I think a lot of people, um, especially starting out, they they think that the program is going to make them a good artist. They got all the bells and whistles, and they're good to go. And then they're frustrated when what they come out with is not quality work or not what they envision. So as far as like Photoshop and Procreate, you know, I use the bare minimum of it. And, and I use it to enhance the artwork. It's basically just another tool, but it, you know, I don't use it to, I don't rely on it heavily. I still, you know, like to draw on pencil and, uh, with pencil and paper whenever I get a chance, you know, time allows. And Photoshop is just a tool. Never rely on it, even though sometimes, you know, I may need it for as far as, um, you know, Getting up a process and whatnot. But um, if I don't have Photoshop, it's not the end of the world. So the technology doesn't really frustrate me so much because uh, I don't rely on it. It seems almost at a certain point with tools, 
it becomes like uh, the notorious B.I.G. song. More money, more problems. More tools. Yeah. More more glitches and more bugs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm you know I'm still using the same Photoshop that I got six seven years ago maybe, and it's PS5, and I'm not sure where they're up at now, but I'm still using PS5, and I've not seen anything on any of the new Photoshop programs that'll make me want to upgrade. Because I don't need it. I think probably the only thing I would like to do is uh, uh, rotate the screen, but I don't need it. And, you know, I have Procreate on the iPad Pro, and that rotates the screen just fine. And I, I don't feel the need to learn or get the new Photoshop program because I just I don't need it. Do you think that that simplification makes things a little bit easier for you as far as focus? The simpl- uh, You mean the simplification of... Not, not getting to a point where you have to have the newest and the freshest thing, you know, just like this works for me and I'm just not going to worry about that anymore. Does that help with your focus? Oh, yeah, definitely. Once I got the basics of the Photoshop, because it's frustrating at first because you're learning a new program, just like any tool, it takes practice. Uh, once you get the basics of it, then you can focus on what you're creating rather than focus on, focusing on uh, the tools that you're using. Once you know how to use the tools, then then you can just focus on what you're creating. I mean, the simpler the tool is, the easier it is to focus on what you're doing. Because, um, you know, I could go out and get, you know, the latest Photoshop program or the latest, I don't know, Cintiq tablet or whatever it is that's out right now. And I'd have to learn all that all the programs on that all over again. And it gets a little bit frustrating. But I, right now, I just don't feel the need to. What I have is working for me right now. You know, maybe in a little bit, it won't. But right now, I can just focus on the artwork and not have to worry about the programs and the bells and whistles and all that stuff. So yeah, I, I, I think it's the simplification definitely helps with focusing uh, on what you're doing and what you're creating. Absolutely. Are you lucky that you just always had that mindset or did you have to train yourself into thinking that way to get over this? Like, you know, there's some people obsess about pens, having the right pen, or were you just always like that? Oh, no. Yeah, no. I was one of those people. I I have a lot of uh, artists that inspired me over the years, uh, comic book artists, and I'd, I'd look high and low. Oh, what, what pen did he use right there? What, what paper did he use? Uh, what program was he using? You know, uh, all these things that are not important. I want. I don't want to say they're not important because you know, as far as some some mediums work better on some papers. So there's some there's some things you do you should know. But um, that knowledge, whether you're using the latest, you know, pen that came out, you know, and you know, that's not going to make you a better artist. And it took me a while to find out, or not find out, but you know figure out because again there's that that frustrating period where you know oh my god i got this pen that you know jim lee uses i draw like jim lee why 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 it took a while before i realized before it it sunk in that you know i can't draw like jim lee because i'm not learning the fundamentals uh i'm not putting in the work that you know someone like jim lee does or any professional artist really 
I think everyone goes through that at some point, or maybe that's just me trying to make myself feel better <laughs> about going through that phase. But um, I definitely went through that phase. Absolutely. And sometimes, sometimes, you know, honestly, sometimes I still do. Sometimes I think, oh my God, so-and-so used, you know, paper number four, weight 140 and yada, yada, yada. I got to go out and find this paper. And I get the paper and I realize, ah, you know what? I could have used a photocopy paper in my printer. <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it takes a while to get out of that mindset. And, and sometimes you, you still find yourself um, falling into that mindset. So, you know, it's one of those things. Well, when you talked about putting in the work for you, what is, you know, what is, what does that mean when you say put in the work, what are you doing? You know, like what exactly is putting in the work for you? So, um, a lot of people, they, they, let's say, uh, I focus on comic book journey. Uh, a lot of people, they focus on the big splash pages and, uh, they want to, draw Superman flying, Spider-Man swinging, and, you know, Captain America punching, and, and that's all fine and dandy. But a lot of times in comic books, you got to draw people sitting at the desk, typing at the computer, uh, driving in a car, drinking coffee at, you know, coffee shop. And so a lot of people spend all their time drawing all the action poses, and then they get to a conversation between two people and they they can't do it and that goes back to fundamentals they they they, they lack fundamentals to really um understand how the body works the anatomy uh resting anatomy moving anatomy or in motion anatomy and so putting in the work uh, when i say putting in the work it refers to you know Going to your library, taking, um, uh, what do you call it, life drawing classes, sitting down and learning the fundamentals, all that boring stuff, life drawing, all that stuff. Seems boring, and it is. It seems boring because it is boring. But it's beneficial in that you, you, you learn the fundamentals of how things work, whether it's nature or, like I said, human anatomy. So really, you got to study is what it comes down to. And, you know, for myself, I didn't go to um, an art school. I couldn't afford it. So I had to read a lot of books, a lot of books. And I had to sit down and read over those books and study and study and study. Now, I mean, good grief, you just go to YouTube and type how to draw hands and everything just pops up, <laughs> you know? They, you know, they got it. They got it so lucky right now. I mean, it's it's so easy to find out how to do anything, really. So when someone says, "Oh, uh, I don't know how to draw," or I, "I can't figure out how to draw," I don't know where to go. I just kind of look at them and say, um, "YouTube, Google, it's it's all right there. You just gotta sit down and dedicate yourself to learning and be patient." And that was my biggest thing too. Still is uh, impatience. It's almost like that ease of access of information, how everything's available to us at any point has made people a little bit lazier, you know, because it's so easy. You know, like you said before, you had to like put in the work and, and go to the library. You had to go places, take classes, and you can still do those things, but you didn't have to. I mean, you had to, you know, as opposed to now you don't have to. So people don't even yeah. think to 
it seems like people don't even think to do the easy things like, hey, just watch like 30 YouTube videos. Yeah. I mean, do you think, do you see that as well? Or is that just me? Am I being crazy? I imagine that is the case. I mean, it took me a while to realize that, you know, all this information was becoming really, really available. I mean, so when I started drawing, I, I, when I started really realized that I had some kind of a talent, I was probably in high school, my senior year in high school. Um, I always drawn, even as a kid, even in, in high school was when it really, you know, a lot of things happened. And, and I really kind of realized that, you know, it was something that I really wanted to do, but really it was only within the past probably 10, 15 years that I realized that I could probably try to start making an actual living doing this. And I'm still working on that. But also during that time when I realized that, I also realized that the the ease of of knowledge to anyone trying to be an artist was it's just skyrocketed from from I'd say nineteen and I'll say nineteen ninety to two thousand early 2000s it's just it's just everything was online everything was online so i think the ease of it you know i don't know if it made people necessarily necessarily lazier i think maybe it made people comfortable Mm -hmm. you know the sense of urgency is not there Uh, and i'm speaking myself also i'm not excluding myself in that you know uh, the sense of urgency was not there. Um, I don't need to go outside to learn to draw. I can just watch it on YouTube, which is not a bad thing. But again, it goes to fundamentals. You gotta you gotta learn. You gotta go outside and learn how to draw these things rather than watch someone draw and think you can, you know, absorb it by just watching uh, you know some YouTube videos. I'm not saying that you can't, but it takes a lot of YouTube videos, <laughs> a lot of YouTube videos and books. Let's go back to that, the word talent. You mentioned, you know, that at a certain age, you noticed that you had talent. To you, what is talent? You know, like, how do you define that? I feel like it's a, it's a word that everybody has like a different definition of. You know, I hear people say uh, natural talent, and that almost implies that uh, if you're not naturally talented at something that you can't be or you can never get talented, there are some things that are like that. Like, um, uh, let's say sports, you can be naturally talented at sports, but you can also work at sports. But at some point, there's a limit, right? If you're five three, you're probably never going to be able to dunk over LeBron James, no matter how <laughs> athletic you are at five three. There's only so much your talent will allow you to do on the court or in football or whatever. But as an artist, you know, outside of, you know, a broken hand or carpal tunnel, it's not a skill that is going to diminish as you get older. It'll only diminish as you maybe stop drawing. So I don't believe that talent, as far as artists, uh, yeah, there's natural, there's people that, you know, naturally gravitate towards being able to draw. But I think anyone can learn to draw. I really do. I think anyone can become talented at drawing if they put in the work. Maybe person A who is naturally talented will catch on quicker, be better quicker. But that doesn't mean person B who's never picked up a pencil or drawn in their life 
can't do the same. It might take them longer. They might have to try a little harder, but you know, they can, they can, they can do it as long as they put in the work. And once you put in the work, it talent draws. You know, I think it was uh, Adam Hughes. I want to say it was Adam Hughes, or maybe Adam Hughes was quoting someone. He's an artist, popular artist in the comic book industry. But he was saying that uh, it takes like a thousand drawings before you start to get good. But the longer you take to that thousand drawings, then that's the longer it's going to take for you to get you know any good. So some people, they've been drawing all their lives. They got to those thousand drawings a long time ago. Now, I don't think there's any kind of uh, a survey or any kind of, you know, data to support that. But, you know, it seems like it seems pretty accurate. I mean, it's almost like the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours of practice thing that everyone quotes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and he may have, that's made them, that may have been what he was quoting. I'm not exactly sure, but as far as artwork goes, I think talent, yeah, well, it can be natural. I don't think just because it's natural uh, or maybe you're not a natural artist doesn't exclude you from becoming a great artist. What do you think it is about the way that you grew up that taught you that work ethic to be the one who was willing to put in the work to get that done? I grew up and it was just me and my mom. So she was always at work. She was always at work. So I was usually at the house by myself. And, you know, as far back as I can remember, I always drew. So I can't exactly remember when I first started drawing. But it was something that I always did. It wasn't until I think in the seventh grade where I took an actual art class and I learned fundamentals that I realized that I was actually mm, a little better, I guess, than most of the people. Mm. Thinking of it now, I remember uh, even in the sixth grade, you know, I got uh, most artistic or most talented or something like that. So it was, it was something that I always did. It was something that was always natural to me. Not to say that I always, I was always good, but I always drew. I was always doodling on stuff. You know, everyone knew me as the artist, even though, you know, I didn't necessarily consider myself an artist, but it, I was the, oh, that's the guy who draws. You know, that was what I was known for. But I can't remember when, when, when I realized, you know, okay, this is what I want to do. You know, I, that, I think that came a lot later. See, I had a kind of a similar experience in the sense that I grew up in a single parent household with just my mother and I, and I draw, I drew a lot as well. So now I, I have to wonder, like, do you think that there's a connection there that, you know, like, obviously that's not the only people who draw, but do you think that people that grew up where it's just, you know, we're spending a lot of time alone, you know, drawing something that we gravitate towards? I don't know. It, it, it's possible. I always like to... Um draw the things that I would watch or read. So when I was a kid, I drew a lot of Spider-Man, Superman, drew a lot of Star Wars. Star Wars was a huge thing for me when I was a kid. It was huge. It, I mean, it still is. But um, it was a huge thing for me. And, you know, it's funny, all my kid drawings burned down in a fire at my grandma's place several years ago, so I don't oh, have no. any of those with me. But, yeah, that's, I mean, everyone was okay. That's the most important thing, but 
you know, and it wasn't even an immediate thought. It was like maybe a couple months later, I thought, oh my God, the fire, the drawings, they're all gone. You know, like I said, I was home alone and, and, you know, I had an overactive imagination. So I would draw things that I thought were cool. You know, so I'd draw Han Solo or Indiana Jones or, you know, whatever was cool at the time and, you know, whatever was out in the theater, which the first Star Wars movie I remember was uh, Empire Strikes Back in 81. That had a huge influence on me, huge. I was all about the pop culture, you know, Star Wars. Um, I still draw a lot of Star Wars, Ghostbusters, uh, Indiana Jones, you know, G.I. Joe, Thundercats, E-Man, Transformers, all that stuff just fed into my already over uh, overactive imagination. And I think maybe, yeah, you know, a lot of kids that are, you know, come from a single parent home probably do have. Uh, somewhat of an overactive imagination because, you know, they're left alone for periods at a time. They got to entertain themselves, whether that's art or whether it's music or, you know, I guess now it's different. Now they just play video games, but, you know, <laughs> from from what I understand. But uh, back in the 80s, I, you know, didn't have a, I didn't have a gaming council or anything. You have to go outside and you had to pretend and, you know, you had to pretend you were the Star Wars characters. I was always Lando. So, uh, yeah, it, you know, I think there is a, you know, a correlation between someone being artistic. Not necessarily that, you know, hey, I have both my parents, so I can't draw. I, I don't think that's the case. But it's not surprising that, you know, someone becomes artistic in whatever way they become artistic. You know, there's different ways to become artistic, I believe. But coming from a, a single, single parent, you know, home, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You you said that phrase a couple of times, overactive imagination. I remember hearing that so many times when I was growing up. Oh yeah, and I think you touched on something there. I I really do think it has to do with, you know, we don't have siblings, so of course we have overactive yeah. imaginations. Because who else are we supposed to talk? Oh yeah. To? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. There are many times I you know. My mom would bust into the room and like, what's going on here? I just I lose track of reality, really, <laughs> because I'm I'm busy. I you couldn't convince me that I wasn't in the Millennium Falcon flying through space, you know, until my mom bust into the room and I remember, oh yeah, <laughs> that's not actually happening, is it? <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh. Yeah, that over my active imagination. I got called weirdo a, a bunch of times at school just because, you know, I mean, because I was, I guess. The things that uh, that people call you weird for when I was in school uh, are the things that are kind of cool now. Like, <laughs> when I was in school, you know, it, it, it's kind of upsetting, but it's also kind of cool at the same time. When I was in school, oh, especially in high school, uh, you, you couldn't tell anyone that you you liked comic books or you were into star Wars or, you know, you were a nerd or a dork or whatever. That wasn't cool. Now it's just, it's the coolest thing. And it's just like, you guys, man, you guys are like 20 years late <laughs> or maybe even more, but it's all right. It's like when I watch uh, stranger things and I watch those kids and I'm like, yep, that was me. I just finished. It's so funny that you brought it up because I just finished. Uh, I've watched both seasons. 
But uh, I just finished rewatching season uh, one this morning. <laughs> so it's funny that you brought it up because I uh, I love Stranger Things. And here's the thing about Stranger Things is that I watched it before all the hype. And what's funny is the only reason I watched it, the only reason I was scrolling through Netflix and you know how they have the uh, the thumbnail of the shows and the shows and whatnot. Right. And the thumbnail for it, I realized it looked like someone drew it. It looked like an illustration. Right. And uh, similar to Juice Chusen, who is a popular um, movie poster illustrator, especially in the 80s and 90s. I knew it wasn't Juice Chusen, but it looked like an illustrated poster. And that's what caught my eye. Because it looked like an illustrated poster that they used to do for movies back in the 90s and the 80s that they had stopped doing for a little while. It's starting to pick up again now. But that's what drew me in. And that was the only thing I had to go. So I just pressed play and I watched it. And (laughs) I was stuck. I couldn't believe what I found. I think it had probably been out for maybe a week at that time. And it was a trip down memory lane. It really was. Yeah, all the references they made, everything. It was just like, oh my God. I was was about that age. Let's see. I think it takes place in 83. So I was like, I was like nine uh, at that time. So I was right around that same age that they, the kids are in the show. And oh man, I, I couldn't believe what I was watching. I love that show. I had a similar experience, although I didn't click because of the artwork. I clicked because of Winona Ryder. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, she, she's doing stuff again. Yeah, she's alive. Oh, no, she was amazing. Yeah, yeah, she was amazing. Yeah, we hadn't heard uh, heard from her since she uh, was she like did she steal something from a store or something like yeah, that? Yeah, and then something with pills or something. I don't remember. She just disappeared. Yeah, yeah, but she man, she came back. She was great on that show. Now, uh, going back to kind of talking about like, you know, like you said, you were always Lando and, you know, connecting with Spider-Man. What do you think it was about characters that you connected with? You know, for me, like some of the comic book characters, like I love the X-Men and the X-Men to me was about like, because I was like a nerdy kid and I wasn't super popular. There was a part of me that always hoped I'd wake up one day a mutant, (laughs) you know, just like, oh, yeah, I'm special. You know, something like that. Did you connect oh. in, to those characters in that way? Or was it something different oh, for you? Ab- no, absolutely. That's absolutely. I can't tell you how many times that I wish that ninjas would bust into my sixth grade <laughs> class and I'd have to fight them off and it'd be great. And I'd be the hero. Like, like I said, o- overactive imagination. <laughs> but is the heroicism of them. I'm not going to lie. I learned a lot of, uh, I don't say life lessons, but I guess, yeah, life lessons from a lot of the, the movies and TV shows that I used to watch, especially, look, Optimus Prime pretty much was my father. I mean, <laughs> uh, during the 80s, uh, you couldn't tell me that I didn't learn anything from Optimus Prime. But yeah, I, you know, it's just the whole, the whole fantastic uh, out of this world element of it all and the whole what if that happened to me what would i do would i be as heroic i would you know i would hope so you know you would want to be the you know as cool as the bad guys were you know i think you want to be the good guy uh, at least i did and, and you know and i also i also gravitated toward the good guys with kind of an edge 
you know, so Han Solo was my favorite character. Indiana Jones, uh, when, when Transformers came out, it was always the one uh, with a little bit of edge. So I, I loved Hot Rod. Snake Eyes was my, mysterious. I always gravitated to the, those heroes that weren't, they didn't want to be heroes, but they were reluctant heroes. You know, funny story about Han Solo. So I always tell people that Han Solo or Harrison Ford really was my Santa Claus. <laughs> they say, what do you mean? I say, well, most people, uh, most people at some point, you know, they believe in Santa Claus when they're kids. And at some point their world is destroyed because they realize that Santa Claus was just, you know, Uncle Joe, you know, uh, drinking the milk and eating the cookies in the middle of the night. And there was no actual Santa Claus. Um, I think I figured out Santa Claus really early and it wasn't anyone that spoiled. There was just something happened that I just realized, oh, that's not real. And it didn't bother me. What bothered me, though, was 1980, Empire Strikes Back came out in theaters. And my mom took me to see it. I remember that. And then 1981, Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in theaters. But also what they used to do back then is uh, every summer they would re-release the big movies from the previous summer. So also in 1981, they re-released Empire Strikes Back into theaters. So we went and saw uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Loved it. Scared me to death, though. When that man's <laughs> face melted off, I had nightmares. Loved it, but I had nightmares. Loved Indiana Jones. Loved it. Uh, maybe a week later, or maybe even a, the day after, I can't remember, we went to see the re-release of Empire Strikes Back. So watching Empire Strikes Back, a movie I'd seen the year before, had all the toys and everything. And then there's something weird about Han Solo. Every time he's on screen, I'm watching him. And I remember thinking, wow, he looks and he kind of sounds like Indiana Jones. <laughs> so I'm like six or seven at this time. And I, so I can't figure it out. And it, it's not immediate to me. And then, uh, you know, and then the movie happens and then he says something else or does something else. I'm like, oh, my God, there it is again. He sounds like and he kind of looks like Indiana Jones. I don't voice my concern. It's, it's a, a mild annoyance. It's, you know, curious at the most. So we watch the movie, enjoy the rest of the movie. That night, get home. My mom's in the kitchen. She's washing dishes and it's on my mind. And so I go up to her and ask her, hey, mom, how come? Han Solo, I think it was something like, how come Han Solo looked like Indiana Jones or sounded like Indiana Jones? And I remember without, she didn't turn her head, she didn't look at me. She just said, oh, that's because the same guy who plays Indiana Jones is the same guy who plays Han Solo. My little six-year-old brain <laughs> just melted. I couldn't believe what she had just told me because it wasn't that she had to explain it to me. So much as in, like, she's an actor. It was like once she said it, it was all clear. It was all obvious. It's just I couldn't make that connection. She had to make that connection for me, and I, it, my mind was blown because up until that point, Han Solo was a real character. That was a real guy. Indiana Jones was a real guy. He just happened to look like Han Solo too. And once she told me that, and I realized that, oh man. Santa Claus? Who cares about Santa Claus? You're telling me Han Solo's not real? My goodness. 
You said your brain melted. It's almost like the face at the end of the movie. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. I mean, that's exactly what happened in my head. My brain just melted. And, you know, she, she, uh, I've only told her this story within the past, you know, few years. She, she has no recollection of it. That's how nonchalantly she said it. I mean, she, she had no idea that she just ruined my childhood. I mean, <laughs> oh. she had no idea. But yeah, I, I was real big into Star Wars and, and all those shows. And they had a, a huge impact on me. And it was the whole fantastical world and heroicness of all the characters. And, you know, they always got the girl. And, you know, as a kid, you always, uh, or at least me, I always, you know, wished that the pretty girl would, you know, look my way one time. and. And the ninjas would come and I'd fight them off and she'd realize that I was cool and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I mean, my overactive imagination. I went the same places, trust me. <laughs> it's the, that's why I'm so amused by it. I'm like, oh, I'm not crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And so, um, and, and like right now, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pour all that into my comic book that, uh, that I'm working on. Right now, as, as even as we're talking, I'm sitting here drawing at the art table, uh, Riley and the Big Bear, and um, you know I'm working on issue two right now, and really it's it's how do I say it? It's kind of a a love letter to all the ridiculous, fantastic, over the top action movies that I grew up on. I'm sure you grew up on, yeah, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Die Hard, the Rambo's, Predator. <laughs> All those, all those great movies in the eighties. Some of them in the in the uh, in the early and mid nineties. Once you read the comic book, you'll realize, oh, yeah, this guy grew up in the eighties and nineties for sure, because a lot of what I'm drawing doesn't make sense, you know, as far as like what it is. But you know, you just go with it, and you know, the action's over the top. It's ridiculous, and more than anything, it's fun. And uh, that's what that's that's what I like about creating and drawing is just having fun of it, fun with it. I don't know. I see a lot of people and they they get real pretentious with their with their artwork. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be serious with your artwork, but you know, there's some people that compute uh, that consider comic book art not art. That's that's not artwork. That's just you know that's. That's my uh, pretentious voice that I'm using right now. <laughs> <laughs> looks, looks not artwork. That's uh, that's just cute stuff. It's like, ah, uh, you know what? All right, that's fine. I, I just like having fun. Hopefully, I can get paid to have fun. Well, when you said Star Wars, you said that you were always Lando, but Han was your favorite. So why were you always Lando? I, I was always I was always Lando because it was a. Uh, let's see, growing up, uh, it was me. Um, it's, I'm trying to think of all the kids. It was me, Miguel, Eric, Jean, Jen, uh, or a couple other kids. Um, but I was the I was the the only uh, uh, black kid. So when it came time to who's gonna be who, well, all right, I'm Lando then, <laughs> I guess. Which is fine. I like Lando, even though even though I was mad at him for for doing Han dirty like that in Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> but uh, he did. Oh, he did my boy so dirty. But he redeemed himself now. So he was all right. Funny story is, 
I, I just remembered this right now. The kid I was talking about, one of the kids was this kid named Dustin. I only knew him for a minute. So I moved out here from um, Mississippi in 83. And so I moved into in Eastside San Jose in these apartments called Valley Palms. And uh, that's where I became friends with the, most of the group of kids that I just mentioned before. But there was this one kid named Dustin. I didn't know him very well, but I just remember he was, he was just kind of, kind of a dirty kid. Like he was just always dirty. Like he just played in the dirt. He was cool, but I don't remember much about him because he moved shortly after that. Now, flash forward, maybe 83, flash forward, maybe eight years later, one of the kids who had moved away, moved back. His name was Eric. And so we reunited. He's like, oh, hey, do I remember Dustin? I'm like, Dustin? He's like, yeah, Dustin used to live two doors down from me in the apartments that we lived in. I was like, yeah, he had like curly hair, right? He's like, yeah, he's on TV now. And I'm like, he's on TV. I'm like, he's on. He's on Saved by the Bell. No kidding. I'm like, Saved by the Bell. And then it clicked. I remember Saved by the Bell. And whenever they show that kid, Dustin Diamond, as Screech, he always looked familiar to um, keep in mind, I only known him for have maybe the first three or four months that I moved in, and then he moved away, so I didn't know him very well at all. Really, I met him. I, you know, we hung out a couple of times. I just remember he was this dirty little kid. <laughs> and you know, watching the TV show, I'm like, God, that Dustin Diamond looks familiar, but it never, you know, never just dawned on me. Kind of like, kind of like the whole Indiana Jones thing, Indiana Jones and and, and Han Solo. You know, something was off, but, you know, I just put it, put it out of my head. So Eric came back. Oh, yeah, he's on, he's on Saved by the Bell. I said, what do you mean he's on Saved by the Bell? Yeah, he plays Screech. And again, my mind level was like, oh, my God, you're right. <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, I, I used to live in the same apartment. So Dustin Diamond, that's my claim to fame right there. <laughs> Dustin Diamond. When we talk about, like, you growing up and being the only black kid, when we were at our age, like most of the stuff that was coming out, you know, like all the comic book characters and stuff, there weren't a lot of black characters. What was that like for you? No. Did it even occur to you? Or, you know, like these no. people don't look necessarily my color? It's it's funny. It it didn't. Um it was never a thing. I think it was, I think in part it had to do with my, my mom. She did a really good job of making sure that, I mean, obviously I knew I was black, but she made a, she, I think she did a good job of making sure that, I don't know, I didn't let things like that affect me, I guess. Um, like I didn't care. It didn't, it didn't register to me. You know, I remember I remember one of my favorite shows growing up when I was a kid was a show called Dukes of Hazzard. Mm-hmm. And I liked it because of the car. It, it, I, I, it was a cool car. It, uh, I liked Knight Rider because of that, you know, Starsky and Hutch because of that. And they had this cool car and they would jump over the, the river or whatever. And uh, I remember I used to love that show, but I didn't know why at the time growing up in Jackson, Mississippi. But my mom would never watch it with me. Mm. She didn't say why. And she didn't prevent me from watching it. Because I watched it because that was a cool car. Right. It wasn't until I got older that I realized 
that the car was named General Lee and it had a big Confederate flag, right? You know, stuck on the on the top of it, and I realized, oh, that's why she probably didn't wanna, she didn't care for it, you know. Um, but she never, that was her hangup, and I think she never wanted her hangups, whatever they were, to be my hangups. Mm-hmm. So she never, you can't watch that show because of this and that. I wouldn't have understood that. And I think she knew that. So I'm grateful for that. And I think because she had that mentality, it never bothered me that there were no, there weren't a lot of um, black characters, you know, represented in comic books or whatnot. I mean, now it's different, but uh, uh, it didn't, it didn't bother me. I don't think it really registered, you know, I, I had no problem playing, uh, you know, if we're playing with the action figures, you know, I had no problem playing with Consola or Loose Power or whatever. It, it, it wasn't, it, you know, oh my God, they're not black. I can't play with them. That, that, it was just something that never, you know, entered my mind or whatever. Do you think if you had stayed in the South that it would have been different? Probably. Um, I mean, I would like to think not. But, uh, you know, there's no telling what kind of experiences that I would have had staying in the South. What I do remember coming out here in the South, everyone, you're either black or you're white, Um, especially back then. Uh, There was there was from what I remember, there was no diversity whatsoever. It may be a little bit different now, but uh, there was no diversity. You're black or white. I come out here and there's there's Mexicans, Hispanics, Asians. Blacks, whites, all, all kinds in, in, in between. So I think coming out here, um, especially at a young age, you know, I, I like to think that, you know, I would have been the same person, but, you know, there's no telling because, you know, you hear stories about things that go on in the South still. And you're just like, God, like, I, I don't know if I'd be the same person. I really don't. I mean, there's a certain freedom to realizing, you know, that you were able to circumvent that. But at the same time, yeah. I can't help but wonder, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with Lenny Bruce, the comedian, former comedian Lenny Bruce, but he used to have this, um, he didn't really have jokes necessarily. He'd do like these weird like scenario things. Um, and one of them, oh, uh, and he would talk about how, and he was doing this in like the 60s and the 50s even. Um, he'd have this joke about how if you were at a party and like a bunch of, you know, like, five white people are sitting there talking a black person walked up all of a sudden the conversation would shift to race like oh muhammad ali that guy is a great boxer that's not even what they were talking about uh, as an artist of color do you ever like even this conversation we've veered into race do you ever get the feeling like okay so what why do we have to always talk about this um you know if it happens i think i i, I think i'm still of the mindset of i don't care that even when it does happen, if it does happen, I I barely notice it. You know, if 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 I walk in and all of a sudden says, you know, the conversation they weren't talking about Muhammad Ali, like you said, and they say, oh hey, uh, Muhammad Ali was a, a great boxer, right? Okay, well yeah, he is. He, he was great. That's all right. We're talking about Muhammad Ali. All right, that's fine. I don't think that would be for me. For me. I don't think that would be something necessarily to 
be angry at. You know, it may take them a while to realize that, you know, they don't have to do that for my benefit or anyone's benefit, really. But, you know, maybe someone else will be angry. Maybe that's why they do it, because maybe they angered someone at some point. But for me, it's that's nothing that I've ever been angry about or necessarily noticed or the times that I have noticed, I didn't care because as silly as it is what they're doing, if, if that's what they're doing, I've never, uh, I've never viewed it as them doing something out of maliciousness or whatever. I mean, they're doing it out of their own uncomfortableness. You know, they may think that they need to, do this to make me comfortable when really they don't they can just keep talking about whatever you're talking about unless of course what they were talking about was like you know something really racist but you know that's that's a different story i i try not to see race in anything that happens unless you know they make it just completely obvious otherwise you know i just leave it alone so would you say that the best lesson that your mother told you or taught you was to focus on the things you love and, you know, focus on the positive stuff. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. Uh, um, she, she didn't let things, uh, she was very much a, uh, teach by example. And what I remember about her is she wouldn't let people walk over her, but she definitely didn't get upset easily. You know, when she did, it was a different story. You know, it was a different story when she would get upset, but, you know, she she never really, I don't remember her really getting upset over any kind of racial thing, even if, you know, someone said something, a racial slur to her or whatever, you know, she took it in stride. And, you know, I think she she got that from her mother, my grandmother, who um, she told me a story that see, my mom was born in 54. So this might have happened in 64, something like that. I guess her and her mother, my grandmother, were at a, uh, was a store called Woolridge or Woolworth. I can't remember. It's some store in Hawkins, Texas. And there were KKK out in front of the store pa- passing out pamphlets. And they had the, uh, the whole getup, the whole, the white sheets and, and everything. They're all, they're all, you know, just all out in the open. And my grandmother, <laughs> bless her, my grandmother walks up to one of them and says, excuse me, I was wondering, how do you keep your clothing so white? <laughs> my, my grandmother, <laughs> my grandmother was impressed by how white they kept their cloaks. She didn't let the fact that they were KKK bother her. Wow. She wanted to know how she, they kept their clothes so clean. That's incredible. And my mom's my, my mom said that uh the guy looked at her and just said, Ma'am, I really don't know. And he was just as confused as my mom. <laughs> my mom being about, you know, ten, eleven, twelve, whatever. She was obviously scared her out of her mind. You know, she's like, Mom, let's go, let's go, let's go. But uh the guy, she said she remembers the guy just kinda being bewildered by the whole thing. I think that's where my mom got it. She never let things like that, you know, shake or get her angry or, you know, cause her to act in a way that wasn't, you know, true to who she was. And I think 
that's why I am, I don't want to say oblivious, because I recognize it when it, when it does happen. But I don't necessarily see it in everything that happens, you know, that's negative, you know. And if it is, then, you know, that situation was for me then, you know, I just I move along. How do you think that mindset that you got from your mother and your, your grandmother, not just necessarily on race, but on life in general, that mindset plays into the stories that you tell or does it? Um, you know, I'm, I wonder if it does. I'm sure it does in some way. Just the whole, you know, staying focused, keep moving forward. The things that are supposed to bother you or that people think are going to bother you, you can't let it. I mean, I'm sure that'll play in some way in my story. And actually, I'm trying to think of a way uh, that it is right now in the story arc. Um, probably not so much. Uh, but definitely in life, you know, you're going to come across a lot of things that are supposed to bother you because society says it's supposed to bother you. And, you know, yeah, it can bother you for a bit. But you can't let it you know, change who you are, I guess. If you like a certain thing and society says, hey, you're not supposed to like that thing. And that thing is not bothering anyone. It's not like it's illegal or anything. Then who, who is anybody else to tell you what you can and what you can't do or what you can and what you can't like? You know, you know the popular thing with the kids is do you. They say that all the time. Do you. But, I mean, it's a true statement. The haters, they're going to hate. Sometimes they don't even know why they hate it. A lot of times. You know, like, yeah, when my grandma went up to the guy and asked him why your sheets are so white or how your sheets are so white. I mean, he was stuck. Here he is wearing this, this outfit that represents hatred. And, you know, here, here, here comes this black woman, comes right up to him, non-confrontational, and asks him, about something that has nothing to do with race. And I think sometimes when you approach people that way, you know, I'd like to think in that moment, he probably had an epiphany. Like, wow, like I look really stupid right now. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think sometimes, you know, people that, that hate and that, that blind hate, they, they just have to come across that one person, show them that, hey, you know, there's no reason to be like this. But uh, that one person has to be a person that's comfortable with who they are. And they're just, you know, doing them. And they're not being affected by the race or race baiting or things like that. What book do you think I need to read next? What book? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I'm trying to think of a book that really, really inspired me. The last book that really inspired me. Gosh, I really, I really don't have an answer. How about? I really don't have. How about a movie or a documentary or something, something to let me step inside of you know the things that have inspired you recently. Um. Okay. Um. There is a documentary on an artist named Drew Struzan, and he had a huge influence on my artwork. Uh, I mean, along with a, a, a lot of artists, but, you know, I would put him in the top three. 
of artists that had a huge influence on me. I, I was a fan of his art before I knew who the artist was. I didn't realize it until I looked him up. And I didn't realize it until I, uh, I started recognizing his artwork. Like, I would love this poster, and then I would love this poster, and they looked similar as far as, as far as the style. I'd look down in the corner, and it would say, Struzan. The other one would say the thing, Struzan. I'd look at all the artwork in the past, and like, you know, I've been liking this guy's artwork for years now. But there's a documentary. Um, it's called uh, Struzan, uh, Man Behind the Poster. Now, let's see. Come on. I just picked it up right now. It's called Drew. The man behind the poster, and it's it's all about him and the impact that he had on the movie industry as far as posters. But more than that, it delves into his life and his past and all the stuff that he had to overcome as an artist. He, you know, he talks about the the support or the lack of support that you know he got as a child. Uh, being taken advantage of as a professional, um, being disgruntled really with the industry the way it was probably about, you know, he retired probably about 10 years ago when the industry really, really turned towards Photoshop posters. It got hard for an artist to, you know, to get jobs doing movie poster work the way they used to do in the 90s and the 80s and the 70s and whatnot. He talks about his frustration with that, but I think watching this documentary, I really admired him as the person, the man that he is, along with his artwork. His artwork is great, but sometimes, you know, someone's a great artist and, you know, they're just kind of a jerk of a person. But uh, he's just, he's amazing, and his story is amazing, and it's very inspiring. Yeah, I really, I've watched it several times, actually. All right. Well, would you like to introduce yourself to everyone and plug uh, whatever links you'd like to plug or projects you'd like to plug and just tell everyone who you are? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, uh, hello, everyone. My name is Devon Amos, and I am a freelance artist working out of San Jose, California. And you can find my artwork uh, on a few places. Uh, Devon Amos at Instagram. Uh, that's all one word, D-E-V-O-N-N-E-A-M-O-S. And you can uh, buy prints and original artwork on my Etsy store. That's uh, www.etsy.com slash shop slash Devon Amos Art. And you can email, email me at devonamos at gmail.com. And as you know, you and I got in contact through Mark Ruiz because when I asked him who he thought I should talk to, your name came up. It's a funny story about how I first met Mark. I first met Mark years ago. I want to say it was probably 98, 99, somewhere around there. And he worked at, he and his wife now, Josephine, they worked at a Costco. And a friend of mine who I had known several years before I met Mark used to work at the theater with me. She, I think we, she introduced us to them. I think that's how Mark, that's how I met Mark. Uh, Jen worked at Costco and then they started hanging out with Jen and Matt. But the first time I met Mark, (laughs) 
did not like him. And I've told him this story too. I've, I've told him this story and he does not remember. And he's, he's so hurt. When I told him this story, he's like, yeah, man, the first time I met you, I, I didn't like you at all. <laughs> he said, why, why, what do you mean? What happened? And you know, it's funny because when I think about it, I don't really know why I didn't like him. And I remember it was one day that me, Mark, Jen, and another friend of ours, Matt, and I, again, don't know why, but for whatever reason, we were all hanging out and we went to a sex shop. <laughs> again, I, I don't know why. I have no <laughs> idea. I can't remember whose idea it was. We went to that KFC. We had, we had some, some chicken and we went to a sex shop and I, I just, I don't remember why we went, but I just remember like, I, I didn't like him. I didn't like him. I don't know why. I just, I didn't like him. And then he was, I think he moved to LA or somewhere for a few years. And then he came back and it was a different story. All of a sudden I realized, oh, man, he's not so bad. He's actually really cool. I actually like this guy. Now see, I don't know if I changed or he changed. I don't know. I really don't know. But I told him that story and he's like, wait, why? And I was like, Mark, I don't know. I just, I didn't like you. I didn't like you at all, Mark. But, you know, a spec shop and KFC couldn't change my mind that day. I didn't like them. You know, one of the best ways to support a podcast is to go over to the podcast app that you're using, especially if it is Apple Podcasts, and take five minutes to sit down and rate and review the show. Just give it a star rating, give it a paragraph, letting people know what value you get out of the show. Because that's how we communicate to the world what this show is about if they haven't listened to it before. And it's also how we communicate to guests or possible guests what the show that is inviting them on is about and what people think of it. So please take the time to rate and review us. Thanks. Thanks.